0: Balaji, welcome back to the What is Money Show. Great to be here. So, you said something really interesting to me in our conversation last week. And I want to pose it to you as a question. When the Fed fails, we buy Bitcoin. When the police fail, we buy guns. But what happens
1: when the US military fails? Right. This is this is actually the question that I have been thinking about quite a bit over the last few weeks and months. And first, you know, one thing I've started to try to do is to establish premises. And the, then if you disagree with the premises, then you're going to disagree with the conclusion. Um, but at least you can kind of see if you disagree with those and then see if you disagree with the conclusion. So are the premises? So first is, you know, about six months ago, I talked about uh, actually, more than maybe all of a year ago, uh, I was observing that the U.S. military had been MIA during COVID. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the military has something called a national biodefense strategy. Since 2001 with anthrax, they've been spending billions on biodefense. Um, there were trial runs with uh, SARS and then Ebola, um, literally billions of dollars over many years there's this whole thing you can Google national biodefense strategy for man-made and natural threats. And at the beginning of COVID, see, you know, on a daily basis, one observes the incompetence of municipal or state or federal government. You know, in San Francisco, there's a $300 million bus lane. California can't keep the, you know, the, the power on with PG&E or the fires out. And, you know, obviously the federal government, um, Is incapable of doing many things, like from setting up the healthcare.gov website to, you know, like even negotiating an agreement, balancing the budget, any of that stuff. So you can observe all these failures in civilian government. But in many ways, when we think about the military, we, you know, unless you're on a foreign battlefield or involved in the military, you don't have direct experience of it. And what is your experience of it? Well, it's some some of it just comes from news articles. But where where would you think, Robert? Where does where do most people's visuals of the U.S. military come from? Uh, These days, probably YouTube. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. So, YouTube, I was going to say uh, Hollywood movies. Oh, yeah. Even better. Right. And in fact, the military actually works with Hollywood to lend them helicopters and this and that to kind of, because they, they understand how important perception is. In fact, maybe that might be the only thing they optimize nowadays is that perception. So transformers mm. or what have you. The US military likes to cast themselves as, you know, coming in to save the world from aliens or mm. super villains or stuff like that, you know? And they're always the good guys and super powerful and whatnot. And the reason that's important is, um, you know, in the movie Jurassic Park, which isn't very meta using a movie reference, movie mm-hmm. references. Uh, they use um, like amphibian DNA to tile over the parts of the dinosaur genome that they can't reconstruct. Right. And so that, of course, leads to disaster later because, you know, it gives them like, you know, reproductive capability that they thought that th- 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 these things didn't have. Yeah. But in the same way for, uh, go ahead, you're saying? No, I was saying, yeah, I recall. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so in the same way, when we haven't observed something ourselves, like you've done work in finance and, you know, we've both been on social media, of course, and, you know, we know uh, about Bitcoin and, you know, I've done biology work. But for areas we have not observed directly, like, uh, like the you know, unless you've been a veteran, the U.S. military, um, you are implicitly, even if not explicitly, relying on the portrayals that you've seen in your head. Mm-hmm. Just, just because, you know... You, you might discount them. You might be like, "Oh yeah, that's the movies," but you might still think, you know what? They may not be superheroes, but they're pretty competent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And uh, if you saw the movie Contagion, it portrays the CDC in a similar way as being competent. Mm-hmm. You know, fundamentally competent, good-natured, smart, calm. Like a CDC woman, literally risks her life and dies, you know, for basically public health. And you know, the CDC is. I, it's it's a very difficult situation. Lots of people die, but they're at least sober, dedicated public servants, and uh, and and lacking something else. Those are the mental models we apply, and I don't actually really fault people for that because otherwise you need to do independent research, and you know, and so on. So so before COVID, I think people could be excused for thinking that, despite all the civilian government incompetence that we saw, that there was a reserve of competence in the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. An unobserved reserve, but a reserve nonetheless, that is in a time of true trouble, there would be, you know, hard men, you know, who would come out from behind the scenes and implement, you know, whatever it took to get the country back on track, you know, and like people will quote these Churchillisms like, uh, you know, the US, guard, the U.S. does the everything else uh, before it does the right thing, you know, or the U.S. does the right thing after it does everything else, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, save the day. Then, and that didn't happen. That did not happen. Um, the U.S. military, despite these billions in defense spending, was completely MIA during COVID. Not only was it MIA, uh, like an aircraft carrier was actually sidelined because of COVID, like they they took it offline. And that was reported in the Wall Street Journal. And the way the whole thing happened, that was like a breakdown in military intelligence. You're not supposed to say when you know, like something was sidelined or something like that. Like the the military is not a free speech zone. Uh, There's things that are illegal in the military that are not in civilian world for all kinds of reasons. If there's a free speech zone, then you could go and blurt out the plans of your assault. And, you know, uh, lots of things don't apply. Right. Yeah. And so the, um, the the thing about that was, you know, the military set up the chairs in the Javits Center. That was that was something that people observed. And they had like a little flower next to people when they died. And so, you know, this was something where at the beginning of COVID, like one scenario I had thought through was the possibility of martial law, mm-hmm. okay? Because, I mean, it, we, we kind of got something like that with lockdown, but it's a chaotic and um, TSA-ish martial law. As opposed to like like a, a bureaucracy that has, the guys do have weapons, but it's the, the softest, most incompetent, porous, useless kind of thing. As opposed to the, for example, hard Chinese version where, see, let me just talk about that for a second. Lockdown is actually something where America copied China. Um, you know, people usually talk about China copying America, but America copied China because lockdown was something that came via China through Italy and then was copied by the US. That was basically the mimetic transmission of the virus, you know, the mind virus. Right. And it was copied without admitting he was copied. See, when the Chinese copy something, They are shameless about it in both a bad and a good sense. They don't have shame when they're copying. They're like, you know Mm -hmm. what? We're copying. So we're going to go pixel by pixel, clone the whole thing, and then we're going to do the Chinese version and just out-execute you on just raw speed. And often that works. And then they make it into their own thing. Like Meituan, the Chinese Groupon started as a clone, but it's now very much out-innovated Groupon. Right, right. Um. So so taking away ego, there's a bad aspect of shameless copying, but there's a good aspect of not having the ego to pretend you're not copying, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that the West copies or copied China, for example, in this context without admitting it was copying. And the problem with that is, you know, as I've mentioned, um, imagine like a Chinese gymnast going and doing a bunch of backflips and then like a big fat out of shape American following them and trying to do the same thing, <laughs> right? Right. Like that, you know, you can't just mindlessly copy. You have to know about your own like resource constraints, right? Yeah. It is possible that the 1940s US could have done something as crazy as the Chinese lockdown. That was a highly organized state. It's unlikely. I don't know if the Chinese state under Mao could have accomplished something like their current lockdown. I, I doubt it, but it maybe um, it was certainly ruthless enough, but it wasn't competent enough. You know, it's chaotic. Um, but times change. And so... The cargo cult copy of lockdown was something that the U.S. lacked the state capacity to do. And so pulling it back up one level, this was not the CDC of the movies. This was not the military of the movies. This was the basically shambolic, catastrophic TSA, DMV government that we've all seen. The San Francisco government, the California government, the DMV government, the TSA government, the post office government, the American government, Mm. (laughs) you know, and- the American government circuit twenty twenty, and uh, so so that it was kind of an important card that got flipped over, and so what I started thinking about, and sometimes you know you have to frame it in like a provocative way, right? Um, the way I was thinking about it COVID nineteen was a military defeat for America, mm-hmm. and why? Because a military budget was allocated. This was something that the US military said that it was prepared to do to defend against man-made national threats. Billions of dollars were allocated for this. Number two, um, it was right in that, you know, at the beginning, this wasn't obvious, um, but where COVID-19 is likely to end up is something like 10 million deaths worldwide. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's where it's tracking to. Uh, that's not the hundred million of the Spanish flu, but it's also not like sub 1 million, 100. 000. It's like right in that kind of mid area. Okay. But- it kind of doesn't matter for evaluating the military performance, because had it been more lethal, it's not like some capacity would have come off the sidelines. Mm-hmm. The capacity that came off the sidelines to deal with it were uh, Pfizer and Moderna, namely like a, a startup and an existing scale biotech, quote, the private sector, you know, that actually had some degree of competence. And... um were pre-existing to the, you know, to the present moment. It wasn't like the military, like, rolled this out. It is true that there was Operation Warp Speed, but that was actually led by a, you know, former um, uh, pharma exec who just unblocked all the normal, you know, gates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure the full story of that has really been told, but uh, th- that was something where it's not like, you know, the US government was running the fermentation reactions and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so... The okay, so what, what what's the point? So that was actually something where um 12 months ago, 18 months ago, you could see that the US military in an area where it had allocated billions of dollars had been defeated. Uh-huh. Defeated, right? Because another way of putting it is what are WMDs? Do you know like like the three things that are considered WMDs?
0: I don't. It's uh,
1: nuclear, biological, chemical. Okay, yeah. NBC is another acronym for it, right? And so nuclear weapons, you know, supposedly invaded Iraq for that, right? Chemical weapons, that was supposed to be the red line over Syria. Biological weapons are absolutely something that is supposedly the military is supposed to have a defense for it, And they didn't. Mm-hmm. So now look, you may say that's hard. You may say that's unfair, whatever. Fine. But they allocated billions for it, right? So mm-hmm. you start to think, well, actually, this thing is a Maginot line. You know you know the Maginot line? Uh, we talked about it a little bit last time, but it, I think you could revisit. It would be helpful. Sure. So, so, so in in France, like after World War One, they built a Maginot Line, which was uh, a system of fortifications near the Franco-German border, um, where basically I'm not sure if it's exactly on the the border France Germany, but it's basically in between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was that hey, before they had fought all this trench warfare, now the next world war 1 they would just sit up there in their nice fortified thing and shoot down on the germans and they they would win problem is that the germans in the meantime weren't stupid and so they went and invented you know basically mechanized warfare and blitzkrieg you know and so tanks, their tanks yeah. just drove around yeah Go ahead. yeah I was going to yeah. say tanks now it's coming back to me now <laughs> that's yeah. right so so you know just drive around this stationary mm-hmm. thing and uh so whatever def- ostensible defense there is against bio-warfare does not exist, which is actually something that we should be concerned about. Uh, also on another dimension, by the way, I'm not, you know, I like with respect to the vaccine thing, I almost, I basically just don't engage in debate on this in public because mm-hmm. I think it's the stupidest thing in the world to be politicized, frankly. Um, like of all the things, let's try, I would put this. Um, the, the fundamental issue is a, a lack of trust between parties it's, it's framed as a scientific debate, mm-hmm. but it is something where if you were a red state person or if you were not somebody who could go and look at the data um, and you wouldn't you didn't feel like you diligence yourself, I understand why you wouldn't take it, right? But fundamentally, what that means is any society that can't put together the level of trust and or compliance and or harmony um, to get mass adoption of the vaccine in short order is vulnerable to a biowarfare attack. Mm-hmm. Right. Fair, this yeah. wasn't that. But like, it's kind of this opening bell that everybody, literally everybody in the world has seen this and how, quote, effective this was, you know, in terms of like knocking down societies. Yeah. And so, if you can't do fast turnaround vaccination of your whole population, if they don't trust authority, you are societally vulnerable to a bio attack. And maybe it mm-hmm. won't be. See, one of the things about COVID is it's not spectacular like Ebola. People don't like die melting down from blood, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like deniable. Oh, they're just kind of choking to death in a hospital and it's only fat people and old people or what have you. You know, it, is, it doesn't really affect young, you know, like like children, right? We're, we're lucky in that respect. The Spanish yeah. flu did go and kill young people.
0: And then that but, blurs the line the yeah. other way too, right? Where you can actually start ascribing deaths that are not necessarily COVID cause to COVID. Yeah. So it really blurs yes. the lines both ways. I,
1: And again, the thing is, I understand why there's distrust in authorities because, um, like, San Francisco is probably faking its crime statistics. It's Mm -hmm. a, you know, they're they're pretending that, like, thefts are down or something like that. And it's all just non-reporting. It's similar to the Soviet Union saying that Ukraine had a bountiful harvest in 1932. The actual unambiguous thing is when you have a state that you can't trust, it was the signal of people actually... Um, You know, like Walgreens pulling 22 stores out of SF, you couldn't trust government. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually very sympathetic to the idea of individual sovereignty and and so on. I'm just making the pragmatic argument that as, as a citizen in society, right, as somebody living in a collective, Um, not everybody can diligence everything. Mm -hmm. I feel comfortable because I can actually go and read ACGT sequences. You know, I know enough of the biotech founders and so on. I know how vaccines actually work. Um, like I'm also familiar by the way, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this as like a, like a dunk or whatever. It is true that many countries required vaccination or vaccination certificates to enter the country prior to the current moment. You can go and look at that, Mm -hmm. um, like yellow fever or malaria vaccines, like, that vaccines weren't controversial until recently mm-hmm. in a, in the same way that um you know fiat versus crypto wasn't controversial in the same way that gender wasn't controversial mm-hmm. um there are things that were sort of alignment points that in society that are now coming undone you know and maybe everybody was just canalized and forced into this you know like column of the 1950s where it's a W-2 employment and you've got a single job and you watch I Love Lucy and mm-hmm. you you all look at the same thing and everybody kind of shuffles off to work or whatever. And and now we're getting diversity back, intellectual diversity and breaks from that in all different directions. But the net of it is your society can't align. And I'm not attacking the people who didn't do it. I, I On their hand, I also don't want to live in a society which – can't get that level of trust together because it's symptomatic of other things, right? You know, like it is not really about consent versus coercion per se. It is about mutual trust and recognizing that uh, or feeling that that person in authority who's telling you X is, you know, they're not saying, Oh, wear a mask and then go to a party and take it off where it just seems like some stupid, hypocritical thing. That's something that anybody can understand, like Pelosi you know, or, or Gavin Newsom not wearing a mask. When they tell you to wear a mask, you know, you're a pro, you're supposed to wear a mask. Hey, everybody.
0: As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single
1: source solution for everything Bitcoin. The U.S. military failed on COVID. It was very observable. It was a huge billions of dollars. They were defeated. They were defeated, like with the aircraft carrier and so on. And so that made me realize that actually, you cannot take the US military at their word on anything. I have to probe and poke on that just as we have to do on every other aspect of the government. And that actually, I said, you know, months and months and months before. The very public defeat in Afghanistan. You can see, you know, uh, like on the Ferris podcast, I talked about this. Okay. And people put back on me and they're like, you know, I don't, I apologize. I don't think that's right. You know, you're overstating it that because the reason is it's, it's not exactly totally out of scope, but it's not totally within scope. It's like a borderline thing. Where people don't usually think about buyer warfare as their core competency when you point it out, it is, but it's just not something that they had, had that frame or narrative on, right? Right. Okay. So because of that, it wasn't like up. it's kind of like saying Instagram defeated Kodak. Well, yeah, but they came at it from right ankles. they weren't like a film company, they were coming at it as, as a as a digital camera company, in fact, or a camera app company. So, but with Afghanistan, it was much more clear. Okay, yeah, six months later, you have this catastrophic withdrawal now. This is a complicated issue, which um, you can argue. I think several points at the same time. Right. First, you can argue that, like even Ron Paul voted to authorize military force to go after Al Qaeda. I think that's legitimate. Um, I also remember the mood in the country at that time, and the problem is, as as like you know, twenty something, or in your your case, you're you know, in very early twenties. You know, it's twenty twenty one. You were in your teens or whatever. you don't have the intelligence of the cia and so like all that stuff you're you're basically going to trust that the government kind of knows what it's doing with this kind of thing we we didn't have social media we didn't have other forms of information that were better at least at first you know Mm -hmm. and um so you know like when you're not being that later of course are anti-war protests and, and so on but as civilian you really don't have any way to gainsay what military intelligence is saying? You're like, you know what? These guys have billions of dollars per year. The entire country's united. Throw my trust behind them. Right. You know, go and kill the bad guys, right? We don't want more stuff to blow up because the anthrax scare also happened a few weeks later. So that authorization of military force, I think, was legitimate. Um, then, of course, that became you know the occupation and then Iraq and trying to transform it. I actually don't know if there's any. Options that were good. It, it, with the hindsight, you can say, "Yeah, just do spec, spec ops, you know, and and just go and liquidate those guys and pop out." Um, but you know, that's uh, you, you could also say some people called for like a shutdown of immigration, for example, right? Which lockdown is kind of done, um, and you know, I think that's actually going to happen more in Europe than in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were alternate paths that could have been taken, but. Uh, And and I think, you know, like, had the immigration shutdown, for example, just to talk about that for a second, had that been a total moratorium, as opposed to like singling out one group, I think people would have grumbled, but I think they would have been okay with it. That could have been a different direction that was taken. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and then you basically would just go and do spec ops, and you would be, uh, you'd basically like look at visas from Saudis and so on. I mean, one of the issues was, there's a quarter under the lamppost aspect of things where, you know, the quarter under the lamppost, you lost your quarter over here, but you're looking under the lamppost. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. What seems to have been, you know, known at that time and certainly today is that all those guys were like Saudis, I believe, um, or many of them were Saudis, uh, the ones at least who were reported as the hijackers. And yet Saudi Arabia really wasn't mentioned in any of this because they were an ally. And there was something that was recently declassified about, like Saudi Arabian involvement into hijackings or, or something like that. Okay, so you can look at that. So it was, whatever. This has all been litigated, you know, for many, many years before the present day. Point being, you can argue as to why um, we we got in there. What should have been done in terms of the withdrawal itself, though. Here's the thing that was problematic: was uh, you're not saying amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Yes, you brought that up. That's a that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's not my coinage. That's like a famous, yeah. you know, military military saying, right? Um, because it's not so much, oh, which tank's gun is gonna win when win against our tank's gun. That's important, but an more important question is how are you gonna fuel the tanks? And mm-hmm. how about the, you know, food for the soldiers? And uh are they gonna be able to get over this terrain and you know, blah, blah, blah. Like you know, all the administrative
0: days, spreadsheet boring stuff is what actually
1: matters. Wins, wins wars, right? Yep. And uh, and this withdrawal showed that the U.S. military now sucks at logistics because they were spotted, two trillion dollars, and twenty years, and total air superiority, and total surveillance of all communications, and a government they had handpicked and a military that they had stood up. And like basically, a, you know, a, an ersatz civil society, um, ersatz meaning it wasn't like real, but they had stood mm-hmm. it up. Like all these, this NGO industrial complex, which by the way, is right alongside the military industrial complex. It's like the priests who come in alongside the warriors when you occupy territory. And even though they mm-hmm. pretend to not like each other, um, they are uh, they're really mutually enabling because these guys justify the human rights, blah, blah, yeah. blah, that says, you know, invade you for democracy. This right? is good cop, it's bad left- cop at scale. Exactly. It's a left hand washing the right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the best way of even seeing that was that uh, poster that was on the wall. Did you remember that? Um, the, the one that uh, the Taliban fighter was saying in front of the gun?
0: Slogans on the wall <clears throat> mean nothing to the guys with the guns. What are the slogans so on the
1: wall? You have all of this,
0: oh yeah, you know <laughs> <Bullshit>. UN sustainable <laughs>
1: development goals, gender yeah. equality, etc. Yeah. and in front, <laughs> I feel bad for gone. these people. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do feel bad for these people. They're being herded by a Taliban fighter with an AK. Yeah. The slogans on the wall. The thing about this, this is almost like a renaissance painting, right? Um, because it shows something that is not normally, that, that's usually denied yeah. or not thought about, which is the NGO industrial complex is backed by military force. Of course. All of those yeah. slogans on the wall mean nothing if you do not have uh, like the the superior military force in that jurisdiction. To impose it, yeah. To impose Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And it shows also that that can be defeated. Mm-hmm that that is not actually an unstoppable thing of progress. And so that can be defeated and was yeah. defeated.
0: So the, the common theme I'm picking up on here is we have the US military representing themselves as the most powerful and intelligent people in the room via the Hollywood movie uh, mechanism. Well, powerful, I'm not sure it's smartest, but yes, sure. Yep. Yeah, competent, let's just say. Competent, yes, yes, competent, yep. We see something similar here, here with... The UN Sustainable Development Goals plastered all over this war-torn region. Uh, but the truth beneath the veneer is that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm postulating here, but that years or decades even of um, not being stress tested perhaps has actually uh, cultivated incompetence within the US military mechanism.
1: So yeah, they're, this, they're,
0: they're just trying to have their bark louder than their, or their bark is becoming louder
1: than their bite, so to speak. That's right. Basically like um, the thing about this is it's interesting because you think that the U S military goes to war constantly, you know, there's actually a parody um, like of military procurement in the 1980s. There's like a movie. Um, it's like something wars. Um is it Pentagon Wars? I don't know. Yeah, here it is. Pentagon Wars, a Bradley fighting vehicle evolution. Okay. So that's like worth watching because um, this is from, oh gosh, when was this from? Because The reason is this starts to give a date on what you're talking about, right? Hmm. Um, this is 1998. Okay. So by 1998, um, the Bradley fighting vehicle project has been in development for 17 years at a cost of $14 billion. Okay. So, you you know, I'm not a historian of the U.S. military, but this kind of stuff shows it's been going on for at least 20-something years. Now, we know that it wasn't going on for 70-something years because during World War II, the U.S. military was able to crank out and U.S. manufacturing was able to crank out like aircraft carriers like every few weeks. It was at this absolutely insane pace. So, stuff that takes like more than a decade now, it took weeks then when they were really trying to do it. Because, you know, for example, this is, I'm not sure if this is apocryphal or true, but the uh, um, the stealth bomber um, was supposedly uh, built in every state. Like that's to say, uh, there are pieces that were split up um, among all 50 states so that all the senators would vote for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least this is something that I remember reading. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But it seems plausible because this way you would have uh, you know sender support for it but that's not the most efficient way to build something um, it is is a way to do it where you you maximize support but you you don't minimize cost or, or, or improve time right yeah. so at some point along the line the lack of you know lack of necessity is the mother of degeneration maybe right? Mm. And uh, so this was sort of masked because there wasn't a pure competitor, but here's the thing. Um, You know, so when when the U S military lost was defeated in Afghanistan, we have to, we have to get rid of the cope, right. You know, there's, there's like kind of both right and left wing cope and, you know, cope you've heard that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like wishful thinking basically. Right. And the first step in in self-improvement is just completely unvarnished Rip, you know, the greatest strength is knowing your own weakness. Rip the band aid off. Yeah. Right. Getting and, rid of the euphemisms. Right. Yeah. And, and like realizing where one is, I mean, look, that, that's not to say being like cruel about it. Mm-hmm. Right. But Just being to be, be honest about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And an honest evaluation is the only way that you can have a turnaround is to know how much one, one sucks. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you need to know how much you suck, how much you're good at, and be like calibrate that constantly. Mm-hmm. Right. And the thing is that very roughly, the um, the left believes that the U.S. government is omnipotent domestically, and the right, the conservatives, believe that the U.S. military is omnipotent abroad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. You know, and uh, actually, much of what the U.S. government does domestically is pretty bad, and actually, much of what it does abroad is pretty bad and is pretty incompetent in both. So, both of those like things, you know, people, they, they, people because they have this almost almost like monotheistic thing that they projected onto the state, like the All Father can both, you know, reward and punish. And, you know, people have projected, you know, from G-O-D into Gov. they like yes. believe in, in the state this way. And so when you critique it, it's not a rational reaction. It's like, why do you hate America yes. so much? Yeah. I'm like, well, look, I actually do understand. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't people who do hate America. I mean, that, that does exist. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But there is a distinction in basically saying, um, this group that you think is defending freedom and that you have paid a lot of money to is not actually getting the job done versus I hate freedom, mm-hmm. those, those are distinct. Right. Anyway, I, 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 I,
0: coming well, back though. I, I, sorry, I wanna to add to that point. I think it's a great, you call it something great here. So <clears throat> the way I think about this is that you know time and money have a way to fill the budget allotted to them, typically. And the, what I'm mm-hmm. the picture I'm getting here of post World War II America is that it's basically been no challenges to its dominion. Well, post Cold War America. Post Cold War. post Soviet war, Union was correct. Regime. Correct. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Um, so this seems to be almost like a normal cycle of institutional rot at that level, where there's not there's no forcing function of war to sharpen uh, the U.S. government and make it competent. And this, and then we get into people, people's perception of government. I like your point of GOV replacing G-O-D. You can't even comment on the organizational reality of the, the incentives that are rotting this institution or lack thereof, let's say, uh, because you're competing with people's like deified fiction of government yes, versus just some, exactly like you said, the hard and fast truth, what's going on with this organization, profits and losses, where are we at? Um people don't look at it that way. People look at the government as if it's not a business when in fact, every human right. organization is a business.
1: So it's okay. So talk, let's talk about this for a second. This is a great thing to talk about. Um, something that took me a long time to understand, but then I was actually able to, I, I don't think even many people have articulated this themselves. Okay. But in tech prior to COVID um, there were folks, especially towards the later years who would get quite offended when you pointed out how bad San Francisco city government was. Mm. And I would, I would wonder how they could be on Mars here. Right. And what I realized, some people would also get mad when you say this about New York or something. And eventually what I realized is that uh, for these folks, especially the Johnny come Latelys in tech, you know, the employee number hundred thousand or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, like no, let me explain what, why I say Johnny as opposed to a founder, right? As opposed to an early employee, as opposed to somebody who took significant risk. These are people, relatively speaking, who, and I'm sure some of your employee, you know, your listeners are among them. So no offense intended, okay? But relatively speaking, if your employee number 100,000, let alone 1 million, you are taking less risk, and it is to a greater extent just a job. And so what I realized was, oh, there's an identity stack for people. Some people are patriotic about their countries others about their companies, still others about their cities, and yet others about their cryptocurrencies. It is what you identify as, okay? Do you identify as a New Yorker? Do you identify as um, a founder or a technologist? Do you identify as an American? Do you identify as a maximalist, right? Right. Then you're going to have something that is sort of sacred to you as your primary identity. And, you know, so... I was. I realized then I was talking across purposes with this person. They were always going to be in New York or in San Francisco. They mm-hmm. loved the Golden Gate Bridge. They loved, you know, the park or whatever. And this was just a job to them. Who cares? I can get another job any day, right? To me, you know, and to, to folks who thought like me, I'm like you know, Hey, I don't mind going for a run outside. It's nice, but you know, there's a lot of bridges around the world. A lot of sunsets can see a bridge, a lot of different places. There's a, there's a, you know, Verrazano's bridge, whatever, in New York. I don't care about looking at the bridge, Uh, but what I do care about is building something like a bridge, but in virtual space, right? I care about that. Um, I care about uh, an environment that's conducive to building things I think of as important, not just getting a a bagel or whatever, right? And um, so, so it's a fundamental cross-purposes. So, they were wondering why I cared so much, about the companies that we funded, cause we had poured our blood, sweat and tears into this stuff. And these people were crapping on it. And they were mad that I was like, the city sucks, right? Mm-hmm. Because the question was, what are you a patriot towards? And what are you simply a customer of? Uh, that right? makes a lot of sense, yeah. And and the thing is that many people are patriots towards something, okay? Um, and, you know, like, for example, for myself, I guess it would probably be mathematics and technology and the idea of space travel and, mm-hmm. um, you know, like like human 2.0. And, and I know uh, people call that transhumanism. And I know more recently that's gotten a bad rap, but Hal Finney was an extropian. Um, and he believed in this stuff, you know, I like- what, what is
0: the term extropian?
1: Oh, E-X-T-R-O-P-I-A-N. That's like, for example, freezing yourself to Uh, live longer or or be revived. Uh, It's life extension. It's brain machine interface. It's all the awesome stuff. Frankly, I think that stuff is awesome, right? (laughs) Now, I recognize there's people who don't like that and just want to be like, you know, the most human they can be. And you you can imagine sort of a handshake between the past and the future, okay? Uh We're both very dissatisfied with the present. And I'm totally okay with people living like a totally organic, and I don't mean this in a negative way, by the way, I'm gonna say this, I don't mean, a quasi Amish-ish life, yeah. right? While we floor it to get to Mars and, you know, like become one with the machine, you know, yeah. and transcend, right? Like that's that's like why I'm in the game is right. infinity, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and civilization yeah. is somewhere in the middle ultimately. Well, well, so, so, you know, here's the thing is actually, so this is actually a very important thing. I do think that the future, not five years, but eventual political axis of the world, even more than centralization versus decentralization is something like transhumanism versus Mm anarcho-primitivism. Basically humans being what they are, um, it is something where you know both of those seem very extreme. Okay, um, but just to define what they are. Okay, there's actually a good debate. Uh, it was a good. It was uh, like Zoltan versus Zerzan. Okay, <laughs> Zoltan is a, is a hilarious. It's you know pretty funny. Both have kind of you know Z names or um, Zoltan versus Zerzan. It was like a little debate that I actually think would be way more important to the future. At Stanford University a few years ago, very sparse attendance. But it's like, you know, how many people were attending the first Bitcoin meetups, you know? And essentially, transhumanism and narco primitivism transhumanism is human 2.0, as I mentioned, brain machine interface, limber generation, uh, CRISPR, genetic engineering, the whole nine yards, right? Like, you know, the the negative version of it is constantly in movies, but you can imagine a positive version. For example, being able to live to 200 or forever, being able to reverse aging, being able to, uh, you know, colonize other planets, being able to, Um, I don't know, like swim underwater, take a pill and, uh, you know, basically have the equivalent of underwater breathing, all this kind of crazy stuff, you know, Mm. Um, you know, uploading your consciousness, knowing everything from all time, glasses that give you terminator vision, all this kind of stuff, right? That's transhumanism is accelerate technology. And the argument is that the thing that distinguishes man from animal that makes us human is technology. That's to say like, that's why we are not apes. That's why we are not, you know, for example, Richard Wrangham has a book called, um, I think, Cooking Made Us Human. I forget the exact title, but um, essentially argues that without technology, humans wouldn't be human because we cooked food. Rather, we could offload that to technology and we yep. adapted to pour more energy into our brains and lessen to yes. metabolism,
0: right? Yeah, it was, it was economic we, specialization, right? We're pre-digesting our food. So we liberated more of our resources toward cognitive development.
1: Exactly, that's random's yeah. thesis, and he put some evidence for it. I, yeah. I'm, I think it's interesting. I think it's plausible. Um, but there's a coevolution of mm-hmm. the external implement and the and yes. the human being, right? I'm reading like, about this right now. Actually, I'm very
0: fascinated. This it's called material engagement theory, where we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, I'm a big yeah. proponent of this. There's a coevolution between the creator and the and what we create and the tool. Actually.
1: And, ch- yes, and again, this is, absolutely.
0: there's a Churchillism here too,
1: where he says the buildings we make in turn make us. I think that yeah. same or, precept or, extends to tools. Uh, Soros is, is uh, you know, in many ways, kind of a bad guy, but he has this <laughs> concept of reflexivity. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, we're also seeing this right now with, you know, the printed money, where it is actually affecting things in a non-linear way. It is yeah. not simply competing for more goods. It is being deposited in people's bank accounts, which gives them leverage to, you know, resign or do strikes, which is fine, except what it means is a labor shortage. And sometimes those labor shortages are in things like dock workers and truckers. So that's also giving a supply shortage. Mm -hmm. So you're having this flood of money causing both more money and less labor and less uh, you know, goods at the same time. And then that's gonna jack the system into a state where it might be hard to recover from because mm-hmm. a bunch of people quit. So you hired new people, they got de-skilled, you kind of took the thing apart and it might be hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yeah. So- And this is yeah, Bitcoin anyway. too,
0: right? Or the inflexible supply. So the more you buy, yeah. demand increases can only be expressed in price, which drives more demand and-
1: That's right. Yeah. So, so, So coming back to this, basically, you know, there there's another thing, um, you know, humans are called like the naked ape or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's because we probably evolved to wear clothes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of just like cooking made as human, we probably, you know, we've probably been wearing clothes for evolutionary time periods. Mm-hmm. So the point being, the, the transhumanist argument is technology is not distinct from humanity. Technology is humanity, mm-hmm. has naturally selected humanity. So flora, dog. You know, let's take it all the way, right? It's it's human reason embodied, right? It's human reason embodied. That's right. And, you know, how do you benchmark a civilization? I actually thought about this a lot. And how do we know if we had made progress in a real sense in the year 3000, you know, it would be our descendants, would would they be more advanced in mathematics than we were?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Why? Because like, if you've seen contact, you know, like mm-hmm. they communicate in prime numbers, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or arrival, like th- yeah. these are like universals, right? And uh, mathematics is, I mean, unless they, I mean, I can't imagine mathematics being different in different areas of space-time, but physics could be, in theory, the, the laws yeah. of physics could be different. Yeah. Um, we think of them as space-time invariant, and you get symmetries out of that, but yeah. they could be different, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, so coming back up, so basically so that's a transhumanist argument, right? And uh, you know we're descended from some combination of Neanderthals and like you know Homo sapiens predecessors in this long evolutionary lineage, and we're not really doing well by our ancestors if we just flatline. We've got to exceed them. We got to yeah. we got to beat that, right? And then against that is anarcho-primitivism, which says. Um, And it starts with, so there's different flavors of it, both right and left, okay? But it says we are polluting the oceans, we're warming the planet. We're also putting plastic into the water supply and it's causing testosterone crashing. We're looking at screens and we're not looking at the outside. We're not in tune with mother nature. Um, These are fairly sterile environments. Um, You know, men aren't warriors. People aren't meant to be cubicle drones. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a combination of right and left arguments, right? That essentially a lot of people have a, it was interesting. I saw a super popular tweet. I was like, "Hmm, that's a," a lot of people have their dream of just going and living on a farm and getting out of the rat race. And that would actually make them happy. So they think is like growing these tomatoes or whatever on a farm. Right now, what do I think about this? Uh, I am sure that that genuinely appeals to some people and they would actually like to do it if they could, but there's levels of it, right? There, um, there's levels. And what I mean by that is um, the Unabomber actually did just live in the wilderness as like a wild man. Okay. Now there's no flush toilets, right? The, that stuff gets really old, really fast. Like, you know, there's no heating. Um, there's actual wild animals and they're not in a the zoo. There's bugs. There's no refrigerator. Uh, you know, for, yeah. like it sucks. It really does Real suck economic scarcities. Real economic scarcities. That's right. Yeah. Um, so like true economic deprivation. So then you say, okay, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. Of course I meant X level of technology. Where yeah. is X? Okay. Where do like, you draw the line? The Amish have actually, go ahead. I was going to say, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Yeah. So now it's not impossible to draw a line. The Amish have actually done so. Mm-hmm. So you, you probably end up with something that's like Amish-like you know, and then you have a boiling off or whatever. That's like the most mm-hmm. realistic variant where we can see that. Mm-hmm. So you have various people who Amishify themselves at different levels. That's fine, right? People mm-hmm. might want to freeze themselves in the fashions of the 1950s or restore, you know, France of the 1800s. I don't know, okay? Mm-hmm. Knock yourself out. You can have a little community like that, like a, like The Town, I think, is a movie by M. Night Shyamalan on, on something similar to that oh, as a yeah, concept. Yeah. I, do you remember that movie, I think? I do, yeah. Right? Yeah, So so you can sort of like, uh, was it the town? What was it called? It was the village. The village, yeah. Yes, it was. Okay. So, towns the bank robbery movie. Yeah, it sounds the bank robbery. a village is the one, right? Um, so, so the Amish version is is fine. It's realistic. Knock yourself out. Go and do it. I don't. I don't care. the uh, the The dumb version, I think. There's two dumb versions. There's a dumb version and there's the evil version. The dumb version, it's like people who think that it'd be really romantic to start a coffee shop. Okay, like a farm is even more backbreaking labor than a coffee shop. Running a coffee shop sucks. Going to a coffee shop is great. You could just pay five bucks, whatever, sip some coffee. Okay, mm-hmm. do you know how commodity coffee shops are running them, especially today in like lockdown times? Mm-hmm. You know, because the state has failed, all of these poor restaurant owners have to basically run this sort of TSA like biohazard lab. You know, right. oh, I need to scrub down the countertops and where the mask. it's like all stupid TSA nonsense. It doesn't, yeah. I, you know, it's just a, like vaccines actually work. Um, and once you've got a vaccine, fine. I actually, uh, I understand that. But like the the scrubbing of things when people have vaccines, I think it's whatever. Anyway, so and you may disagree with me on this. It's fine. You know, we're not going to be able to litigate that. But, um, the the point being that it's because uh, running a coffee shop is hard, and people underestimate that. I think they really underestimate how hard it is to run a farm. I mean, it's not Uber Eats, okay? <laughs> like, like you can't just click a button and you know the French fries come to your door. That potato has to grow out of the ground. Mm-hmm. That's not an on-demand process. It's the opposite of on-demand. It's it's mm-hmm. high risk, but it's not just high risk. It's high risk for like this commodity product where you could have a potato famine. You know, one of the things that's actually very hard to get one's head around is how difficult it is to do physical stuff and yet how cheap it is. That's a weird thing. Cheap in the sense of like, you know, if you, okay, have you, I mean, you've eaten tomatoes, right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Like growing tomatoes is not that easy. I mean, okay, yeah, you can have a little tomato thing, garden thing out there, right? But like- Growing all the food on your that comes on your plate is a non-trivial oh, exercise. Yeah, yeah,
0: I've seen a video on this where a guy made his own sandwich. I think from scratch. Oh, that's great! And, yeah, you, you know, and it was it, you basically you realize the value of the division of labor. Where if you're going to try to grow the grain and grow the tomatoes and you know harvest the turkey and the cheese. I think he spent, it was a, it's a funny video. He spent like $50,000 on a sandwich, something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So this, by the way, is the same thing that in a different setting, bedevils hardware, American hardware manufacturers versus the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Like the first with Apple being an exception and there's other exceptions like Fitbit who just execute extraordinarily well and use China in the right way and so on, which might not be possible anymore in 2022, you know, anymore, Mm -hmm. but <clears throat> like the American hardware manufacturer faces something really tough, which is it's super difficult to build a hardware product and make it robust. And like, you know, just like hardware is hard to iterate on really hard. And that's why they say, I was saying hardware is hard. And then have it out in the field and people messing with it and weird bugs and stuff. And then you have to like, you know, if you, you have to have very high margins on your units to tolerate refunds, and you know, because if if you only have 10% margins, then one refund eats a margin of 10 units, you know, if it doesn't work. And so your error rates need to be really low. It's a really tough business. Mm -hmm. And yet the moment it works, it'll get cloned by a bunch of Chinese uh, competitors uh, who are immune to any IP lawsuits. So it's both like super hard to get the zero to one and it's it's not valuable, which breaks the human brain in some ways, yeah, right? Like yeah. really hard and not valuable, right? Um, not to say it can't be done. There are successful hardware companies. I mean, it's like Tesla, obviously, um, SpaceX, like Elon is insane in the level of difficulty of what he's done, you know? Yeah. It's actually insane what he's done. But because uh, it started with so early too, before many of the other you know big companies, Androids out there, Oculus managed to do stuff mm-hmm. like it, it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, farming is difficult. And now where where I think it is interesting. Okay, and this I'm not. This is not the Anarcho Primitivist. Maybe this is the the resolution between the Transhumanist Anarcho Primitivist. You know what I do think is becoming more and more feasible. What's up? Individual or small community robotic farming. Hmm. Okay. Agricultural robotics is quietly doing extremely well. I mean, this is the type of stuff which people should know about, not some stupid, like national political stuff that they can't affect that doesn't affect them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like these technological advancements, of course, I would say this because I'm a tech person, you know, other people might say, oh, you need to know about art or literature. But mm-hmm. I do think this stuff is, is practically important because agricultural robotics, while it will, you know, change workforces and labor and so on. And that, by the way, the great resignation is going to catalyze great automation. Um, Do do you know what I mean by that? Resignation from... So right now, that's what they're calling it. Lots of people are resigning their jobs. Ah, okay. Yeah.
0: So this creates more demand for automation
1: or economization. Uh, That's right. Basically, in general... One of the reasons, you know, people think that the North won the civil war was among all the obvious moral issues with slavery, it retarded the industrialization of the South, right? because they they had slave labor, right? Yep. Whereas the North automated and industrialized. Mm-hmm. And so in general, if you have too much, I mean, you even see this, like you see this in lots of other contexts, but um, if you have too much of an abundance of labor, you, you don't automate, you know, mm-hmm. for example, Um, the upper Midwest has a greater degree of automation than like Southern California, because Southern California has many more migrant workers and the upper Midwest has less. And so they have more agricultural robotics. Go ahead. And back to the
0: conformity, automation actually displaces slave labor in the long run too, because it makes labor a smaller and smaller component of the cost structure. So eventually the cost of securing your slaves outweighs the benefit.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, that's just economics, but the yeah. morality of it as well. And, you know, the, um, you know, by the way, you know, one, one thing that I think relatively few people think about, but that's important to like, to know is, you know, com- like the South was, was slavery, but communism was also slavery, mm-hmm. you know? That's to say, when when you are taking 100% of somebody's property, Yeah, 100% that is taxation, slavery. yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, basically, to, to make it really clear, you know, people, just to digress on this for a second, the Soviet Union, you know, they, do you know the White Sea Labor Canal? I don't. That's like probably the classic, you know, these Gulag prisoners were forced to dig a canal with their hands in freezing tundra, you know, because they didn't have sh- like, yeah, this is crazy stuff. Wow. It was a horrible canal, too, because they didn't use modern construction equipment, you know, so these guys froze to death, died, because in the workers' paradise, you couldn't strike anymore. Right, you couldn't leave your job. It right. was a gigantic no. prison state. Go ahead. No, no, no
0: I, I'm I'm uh, reminded here where you couldn't even be sad in the Soviet Union because that would imply that the utopian state was not doing its job. So if you were sad yes. or complaining, um, you know, you were dealt
1: with, comrade. You weren't grateful of for right. for Lenin's <laughs> yeah. glorious October Revolution. So now, where people will poke on that is, so I think communism, one can safely argue it is slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Where people will poke on what you said uh, is, and, and then I'll give a poke on the poke, right, counter argument, mm-hmm. is that we've all signed the social contract, right? Yeah. And, you know, right, you can, and, and I think the distinction mm-hmm. is, is free migration possible? Is jurisdictional competition possible? Mm-hmm. And if it is, then you have Opted in to quote paying subscription fees to you know it's it's like by entering that jurisdiction you've quote signed a contract mm-hmm. right um, by exiting the jurisdiction you have um, you avoided the contract after you've paid what is owed right mm-hmm. and um, so I think that is the like so that means that the fundamentally the Soviet Union was illegitimate because it was a prison state and in fact all of these communist societies end up restricting emigration. That's why the Berlin Wall was built. Do you know that story?
0: Uh, I know it was built to keep taxpayers in more than it was built to keep people out.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, right. So what was happening was the the, the geography of Berlin after World War II is something that's worth looking on in a map. Is like this weird thing. There's an enclave of West Berlin, like within East Germany, just the nature of how the occupation zones worked after World War II. And um, by the way, as a, as a as a side note to a side note, Wars are almost like lava flowing. And then when they stop, like where the troops are posted ends up like hardening into things that can last generations and generations. Like the Korean War is over where the Soviet American troops were in, you know, the Korean um, Peninsula and, uh, you know, East Germany and West Germany, like lots of that stuff is from that hardening that happened, right? Mm -hmm. So basically the, the geography of West Berlin was such that it was the loophole where people from East Germany could just walk into West Berlin, and many of them defected, especially skilled people who were basically being underpaid in the communist regime—doctors and and all of these other folks, right? And um, so eventually, this became an embarrassment to the East German regime, and they invented this whole language for it called "Republikflucht." You know, uh, and Jonas, uh, it's like this one of these German words, like you know, like Schadenfreude. Um, have you heard this term before? I know Schadenfreude. I don't know the first one you said, though. Yeah, so Republic Flucht, R E P U B L I K F L U C H T, was the colloquial term in the German Democratic Republic for illegal emigration to West Germany, West Berlin, non Warsaw Pact countries, right? And think about this is how they phrase it. Tell me if this sounds familiar. <clears throat> Both from the moral standpoint as well as in terms of the interests of the whole German nation, leaving the GDR is an act of moral backwardness and depravity. Those who let themselves be recruited objectively serve West German reaction and militarism, whether they know it or not. Is it not despicable when, for the sake of a few alluring job offers or other false promises about a guaranteed future, one leaves a country in which the seed for a new and more beautiful life is sprouting and is already showing the first fruits for a place? that favors a new war and destruction. (laughs) Once again, we're back to this
0: moralistic camouflage that statism dawns. You know, it's trying to present itself as some type of deity uh, misrepresenting itself instead of the truth of it being just a business. I'm reminded too of that that line in The Sovereign Individual that says, in this wave of change where people have an option to basically offshore, you know, effectively offshore their capital in the digital age, that only the most patriotic or stupid would keep their money in a regime that um, keeps increasing the tax tax rate.